Well, it's good to once again be able to bring God's word to you, and I trust tonight as we hear God's word that it will prove to be a help and a blessing to each one of us here present. <coughs> now, authors and writers uh, often use an introduction to sum up to, what is to be found in a book or an article. And certainly, John Bunyan does this quite aptly in the title page of his book, Pilgrim's Progress, where he, as his title, he has this in it, and the title itself really introduces the, the whole book in a nutshell. For this is how it is put by Bunyan. The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come delivered under the similitude of a dream wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey and safe arrival at the desired country. Quite a lengthy statement, but that describes really what's in that book, you see. When we come to the uh, scriptures, we also find something similar and, for example, in Luke chapter 1 and the first four verses, this is how Luke introduces his gospel. Luke chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 4. Inasmuch as many have, t have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And then just in the next gospel, that is John chapter 1, we have that very magnificent a statement that John makes of the Saviour, Christ. And let's just hear the first five verses of John chapter 1, an introduction to all that's to follow in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overwhelm it. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there are three introductions there. And when you come then to Psalm 116, the psalmist uses a similar way of describing his situation. So in the first two verses, there is his introduction to what follows. And it is really a... Um, it, it is praise to God for deliverance. Look at how he puts it in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him 
as long as I live. Just two verses, short, to the point, but it describes everything that he wants his readers to know, us to know as well. So he's very careful in his introduction then to try and put in place things that will cause us to want to look further into the psalm and to gain help from, uh, from the psalm and blessing. And so then as we look at Psalm 116 tonight, I do want to use three particular points to uh, bring set before you. And the first one is the occasion of hopelessness. The occasion of hopelessness. And here we are looking at the section in the psalm from verse 3 on to verse 11. Uh, I won't cover every single thought in that particular passage, but um, just to say that that's where I'm drawing this material from and why it is for the psalmist an occasion of hopelessness. Look how it starts in verse 3. It says, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. It sounds hopeless just to start with, doesn't it? Now, a little further on in Isaiah's prophecy, in chapter 38 and verse 1, we learn there about King Hezekiah of Judah. And King Hezekiah, we are told, became desperately sick and he approached death. He was very near death. And in his sickness and just wondering if he would ever survive that um, sickness that he had contracted, so it was that Isaiah the prophet then came to visit him and was taken into the king's chamber and so on. And what was the message from Isaiah? You know, the Lord is going to be gracious to you. The Lord will heal you. No, nothing like that. But rather the very stern words from God, Hezekiah, set your house in order, for you shall soon die and not live. That's blunt. And to Hezekiah, who perhaps was trying to grasp onto some kind of hope that he might survive, this was the thing, the straw, as it were, that broke the camel's back. And what a message. A message which just created an absolutely hopeless situation for King Hezekiah. God saying, you're going to die. That's it. Whatever afflicted, whatever sickness Hezekiah had that brought him, it brought him to the point of hopelessness. He was saying in effect to himself as you would read that particular chapter 38 of Isaiah. He was saying, no one can help me, not even the best doctor or physician of the day. No one can help me. And perhaps he knew of people who were in a similar situation and he saw the outcome of the sickness that they had contracted, which was like his. No hope for King Hezekiah. An absolutely hopeless situation. And here's the psalmist, whose name we just do not know. And the psalmist expresses exactly that. My situation is hopeless. You know, the, the pains of death, the cords of death surrounded me. and I was trapped by them. The very pangs of Sheol 
laid hold on me. So severe, and in his sickness he knew that he was surrounded by but by the sickness he had contracted. He knew that, naturally speaking, he could not escape death. And just as a snare would entrap an animal so that the animal has no possibility of escape, he was in distress and sorrow. Distress. And that, uh, that uh, distress that he expresses here in verse 3 is very strong because it is a repeated verb. And it speaks of the deep sorrow that he has, the absolute hopelessness of his situation. As he thought and looked inwardly, perhaps he saw the reality, I'm soon going to be leaving this life and I'm leaving behind my wife and my children. And perhaps he thought of how there were so many things that he could have done better towards his own children and his, and, and his wife. There's nothing he could do. The end had come. He was soon to die, you see. And perhaps he, he thought as well, well, there's all the goals that I had, everything I wanted to do for, for, for the kingdom of Judah, and there's no possibility that I can do them now because the end is upon me. I'm soon to go to God. And perhaps it was that he thought about his spiritual condition, you know, if, if only I had served the Lord with more enthusiasm, with more fervor, if only I had just been more zealous in serving the Lord. But the opportunities had passed, you see. There was nothing more that he could do. His situation caused him, as we learn in verse 8, to weep often. It's put like this. <clears throat> you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears. In other words, Hezekiah wept tears. They ran down his face. He, he realized in his heart, my situation just is hopeless. No one, no one can help me. And he discovered also that his friends well-meaning as they were, and perhaps we can think of Job and his three or four friends who came to try and comfort him. They turned out to be no help and no comfort at all. And he discovered then that his friends did not offer any help. Perhaps even his own family members were uh, not very helpful towards him. The professionals of the day seemed to be unable to provide any comfort and help to him. Then who else could you go to? Well, you'd sit... Why not go to the priests? Why not go to the temple? Why not go to the, the high priest and say to him, you know, I'm soon to die, what can I do? Even that was cold, cold comfort to him. Their words, their counsel did not help him at all. And their intended help was meaningless and crushing as you have it in verse 10 and 11. Look how he says things there. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. All men are liars. The help that I expected to get from those whom I looked up to, and even my family, no help whatsoever. That's what he's saying there. The help was meaningless. It crushed me. It, it forced me even lower down into despair. 
and cause alarm instead of help. Some of his frustrations may be likened to the words of a hymn in, our, in the hymn book, <clears throat> Christian hymns. The hymn, O Christ in thee, my soul has found. And one of the lines, or one of the verses goes like this. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Here was the psalmist in a hopeless situation, and he was reduced from pride and independence to a state of dependence upon other people, and he was humbled as well before both man and God. The great psalmist, whoever he was, uh, seems to have been an influential man, but he could not say with any confidence that there was any place at all for pride at all in him. He had been broken before both man and God, humbled, and his situation was therefore a situation of despair and hopelessness. Could it be that some of you here this evening have experienced the mystery of God's providence in your life? Sometimes we like to speak about God's providence when he blesses us in a particular way and we can actually see what he's done in his mercy. Sometimes we can look back over many years at some situation that we couldn't understand at the time and suddenly we look back and say, ah, God was so gracious way back then to me. Wasn't God good to me? Well, you can say that, but did I not say to you the mystery of God's providence? And even this evening or in past days, you have been in a situation where you've just not known in your own heart why God has permitted something to happen to you. That you've enjoyed perfect health and suddenly your health goes. Why? And you ask the Lord, why have you done this? And as it were, there's no answers except that God does his, follows his perfect will in your life. <coughs> well, let me try and just illustrate this in some ways, just in a general sense, <coughs> the mystery of God's providence in your life. <coughs> Maybe you've become sick. And the medical profession to whom you have, you have gone for help have offered little hope. Little hope. Again, you may have been in distress because of your family situation. Perhaps a child or grandchild has been diagnosed with an incurable disease and you know, suddenly you, you, you don't know what to do. Why has this happened to me is your question and you may ask God why. And you know in your heart that in that situation there's little hope and you feel it. You don't despair necessarily but you cry out to, <clears throat> out to God and you ask why it is like this. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> 
Again, you may be deeply concerned about your children, your grandchildren too, in spite of them being taken to church faithfully, in spite of them being taught the word of God in church and at home, being prayed for, in spite of your child being given every opportunity, every good counsel, every encouragement to come to church and to trust the Lord, you have seen to your astonishment and dismay your child just going in a different direction, not trusting God, but rather going after the things of this world and desiring to have the things of, of sin, the empty things of sin, for ultimately the pleasures of this world and the hedonism of this world are just empty and a rubbish. And you look on at your children and your grandchildren and your heart aches and you wonder why it is that you have prayed and taught the word of God, brought your children to church and you don't have the answers and God, as it were, is silent. It's a situation, we could say, of some despair when it's like that. Perhaps even, and I don't know everybody here this night, <clears throat> perhaps you have listened to the gospel over many years and in your heart at various times you have experienced the prompting of the Holy Spirit of God in your heart and you know that he is urging you to trust the Lord but somehow perhaps you have not responded to the promptings and the call to obey the gospel and conviction has come <clears throat> and perhaps you have said no, not now and like perhaps so many young people I first want to enjoy myself and then I'm going to bother about uh, Christianity and church and so on and very often that never comes, never happens you see and perhaps you think therefore that because you have spurned God's invitation You've not wanted it for yourself. You may think to yourself, I'm too bad. God cannot save me. I've spurned the day of grace. And you may think like that. And you may be just like the psalmist <clears throat> in a state of hopeless despair because you know that you have, as it were, sinned away the day of grace. But my dear friends, just as the psalmist despaired and thought his situation was absolutely hopeless, hope came, and that hope was from God. And God came to the psalmist and helped him out of his situation. God did the impossible. You see, no one else could help, but the Lord could help. But the Lord did help the psalmist. And even today, in your situation and mine, whatever it is that we face, however mysterious it may be, however difficult it should be, the Lord Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, <clears throat> and forever. He does not change. The one who is your heavenly Father does not change. He is ever the same. And for that reason, we may discover his mercy and grace in ways that we never imagined that he could bless us with.
and I'll explain a little more of this in due course, you see. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who can help, and especially so with the salvation of your soul. And the Lord Jesus Christ can do what you cannot do and what man cannot do. I cannot bring you into the kingdom of God. It's the work of God alone, you see. But uh, isn't it wonderful to know that God gave his son to die in your place, to bear all your sin and shame and, and, and the penalty of your sin so that you, by trusting in him, should become a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus and be given the, the privilege of becoming a child of God. How merciful God is, far beyond what we can imagine. And so really, there is something you see there of the occasion for hopelessness. But we must look at verses 4 to 11 in the second place. And there is opportune help. Um, or appropriate help. Now it was in his need that the psalmist cried to God for help and he kept on asking and implored the Lord for deliverance from death. Look at verse 4. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Just two little words there. I called on the name of the Lord. I implore you, deliver my soul. So the psalmist came to the Lord for help and he kept on asking and he implored the Lord for deliverance from death. And the force of the word may be illustrated by a a child in a a child's play pool, you see. And, of course, the child would have those um, inflatable armbands on, perhaps a a kind of life... uh, um, Oh, dear, I just can't think of the word, but a kind of life preserver around its waist. And there it is in the pool, having fun, splashing around... You're the parent and you're just looking on, as mother and father, just looking on at your child or children enjoying themselves in a play pool. And you might hear the words as a child tries to get around in the inflatables that are on her and uh, the child says, oh, help me, help me. You, you know, that's how, that's how children are. Are they asking for help? No. They're just a bit frustrated because they can't turn the stuff around and go where they want to go. So they say, help me, help me. But if it is that the child does get into trouble and perhaps slips out of the life ring and its head goes under the water and the child comes up and it says, help me, Dad. Mom, help me. How are you going to respond to that? As a parent, you'll rush in there and you'll grab your child, pull it out to safety. You see, exactly how the psalmist was thinking. Exactly the same. He wasn't saying, oh, Lord, please help me. He was imploring God. 
Lord, help me. I can go to no one else but to you alone. I'm going to die from the sickness, O Lord, but you can heal me, but you can set me free. You can deliver me, you see. So his cry is quite um, impassioned when he says, Help me, deliver my soul, set me free. And so it was that the psalmist discovered the undeserved favour of God who heard his plea and who delivered the psalmist. If the psalmist was humbled by God, he takes it further in verse 6 where he acknowledges that the Lord preserves the simple-minded. Simple, ordinary, plain statement. The Lord preserves the simple I was brought low, and he saved me. The Lord preserves the simple. As we would think about that, my dear friends, he is making the acknowledgement that he himself, the psalmist, is a simple-minded Not stupid, not bereft of intelligence, but simple-minded, you see. Now, you may think to yourself that you have to be bright to understand the gospel. You may think that you have to be very sharp and intellectual to be able to understand everything that you find in the Bible. A lot of people think like that. You've really got to be highly intellectual to be able to understand the truth of God's word, to grasp it and to be able to think it through, meditate upon it, comprehend it. The psalmist is saying, no, no. The Lord preserves the simple, the ordinary people, the simple short prayer of faith for help, you see, That's what he's talking about. And it's not our ability to understand the Bible before we believe. But isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit of God will take a verse of Scripture, perhaps something that you have learned in the past and committed to memory, and it comes before you at certain times in life. Perhaps you are concerned about the state of your soul before Almighty God. And you remember something that you read in the scripture, a verse. And it comes to you with force. Where did it come from? Just suddenly put into your mind? No, no, it's God the Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and brings it home to your head and your heart to help you. And to take you from the state of of, of being just dismissive and caring and bringing you to a state where you can say, Lord, I can go to no one else but to you. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That was the experience of the psalmist. That's been the experience of so many of the children of God who have come to faith over years and years. 
And so when God stripped all support from the psalmist, he gave him the ability to trust the word with childlike, simple faith. <clears throat> Some of us have faced trouble and trials, and certainly all of us will face uh, trials. Perhaps some of us are in them at this very moment. And therefore, at various times, the scriptures come to our minds from God the Holy Spirit. Things committed to memory will suddenly come before us with such help and will help us and will strengthen us and will encourage us. Like those words, I will never leave you or forsake you, which we looked at two weeks ago. That is precious, is it not? God said it. It's certain. He'll do that. He'll never leave you. But then think about also what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, where he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, what can separate you from the love of Christ? And he goes on to describe that there's absolutely nothing, 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 that can separate you from the love of your Saviour. Nothing. And think about this, Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good, for the good at least of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Or if you're going through suffering and it's, there's difficulties that you endure, what Paul says to the Corinthians after his amazing vision of glory and the thorn of flesh, excuse me, the, the thorn in the flesh that came to him to humble him, and Paul imploring the Lord to take that thorn away, you see. And God's answer wasn't to take away the difficulty. No, no. Paul got something far better. Not just relief from pain or whatever it was, but the word from God, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. What a precious promise that is. We are weak, our God is strong, and his grace is just enough for you in whatever situation you face. And so the testimony then of the psalmist was this. He saved me and he set me free in verse 6. He saved me. <clears throat> and very strongly in verse 8, he makes the point that you delivered my soul. So there's the word, you saved me. And on the other hand, you delivered me. Or if you like, you rescued me. Now... <clears throat> I don't know how it is with you, but certainly I'm guilty of this. But sometimes when I'm all alone at home and my wife has perhaps gone somewhere and uh, I'm home alone, I talk to myself. <laughs> I suspect quite a few of you do that. And I don't know why I do it, but I do. I talk away to myself about various various things you see and that's exactly what the psalmist does <clears throat> verse 7 look at it he's talking to himself here and he says return to your rest <clears throat> return to your rest O my soul for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you 
talking to himself, you see, but he's speaking truth. He's just admitting that God has been so merciful to him. The Lord had heard his prayer and delivered him. Prayer had been answered, and what followed was that peace and the presence of God, as you have it in verses 8 and 9. And so it is that the psalmist is full of joy there. The Lord had delivered the psalmist (coughs) from death, and in God's providence it does not necessarily mean that we who are the children of God, you and me, that uh, he will necessarily um, deliver us and heal us from every difficulty. He won't always deliver us from every difficulty, neither will he bring healing. Sometimes God withholds that, you see. But what is important to grasp is that the Lord will give you, as his child, his peace, his presence, and his ability to cope with your situation. In other words, you are not alone. Your Father is with you. The Lord Jesus Christ, your Saviour, is with you. The Holy Spirit dwells within. (coughs) What Christian does not want to glorify God in their lives and to live for God and rejoice in the Lord in suffering and trial and not complain? That gives such great glory to God. There are situations in life that we can't change. Sickness comes And we may know it will be terminal. And some people resort to whinging and complaining and even grumbling to God. How could God treat me like this? But when we say, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. I'm just your child. You know best. And we don't complain. And we say, God has been so good to me. That brings great glory to our Saviour. But then in the third place, we look at verse 12 and onwards. And it's the offering of praise. The offering of praise. Now, Francis Light's hymn that we sang earlier this evening, uh, Psalm 103, Praise my soul, the King of heaven, To his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? It's a very um, remarkable way of expressing joy to God, praise to God for what he's done. And this is what the psalmist is describing as a consequence of the Lord's mercy to him. When he asked the, the question then in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord and pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Offering of praise. So he says in verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation 
a very deliberate thing. It, it is the willingly, it is, excuse me, it is willingly receiving the saving grace of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the Lord has, Jesus has done everything necessary to forgive your sins and make you right with God. He's done everything. And the question to set before you this night, have you taken up that cup of salvation? This is what the psalmist is trying to say, or at least is saying. He took the cup of salvation. He was saying, I believe God has saved me. Have all of you taken up that cup of salvation? Have you? I urge you to do just that. You know enough about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Take up that cup. Seize it and make Christ's salvation your own. God is merciful and will do this for you. But then... Twice the psalmist says in verse 14 and 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. I will pay my vows to the Lord. It's an emphatic statement made even stronger because it has a very strong tense in the Hebrew. Where does the psalmist intend paying his debt of gratitude for God's mercy? He tells us in verse 19 where he says, in the courts of the Lord's house. Now for him that would have been Jerusalem, certainly. And for you, is it not the church, the place where God's people meet? And this is the place where we give thanks to God for his benefits, for his blessings toward us. This is the place to do just that, in the courts of the Lord's house where God's people meet together to worship him. Learn from the psalmist, my dear friends here this night. Now, in view of the saving grace in Jesus Christ, when you come to church for worship, what you are doing pleases the Lord. God looks on this meeting tonight. He sees every single person here, young and old. He knows you. He sees you. And it's a strange thing to think this, that just your presence in the place of worship brings joy to him. Is that all? I hasten to add there's a lot more than that. Bear in mind that when you are present in the place of worship, that you are encouraging others because you are here. You're not sitting at home. You're not watching a Zoom service, say, or some other church. You're here where the people of God meet regularly. And you may not even be aware of it, but the fact that you are here worshipping God is such an encouragement to everyone else here present. Do bear that in mind. It encourages me this evening just to see you here. But especially if I may add this to you, add this. <clears throat> if your health is not very good and you struggle with sickness, 
You struggle with frailty and you struggle because of the restrictions of old age. And where are you? You're in the place of worship. That speaks loudly of your commitment to Jesus Christ. You want to be where the people of God are. And even you know you've got the aches and pains and it would be much more convenient just to sit at home in the comfort of your favourite chair. No, no. You're in the place of worship in church. Even on a stuffy night like this where it's so warm, you want to be here. You don't know what an encouragement that is to the people of God that you are here when you have such restrictions and uh, difficulties. There was a very dear man in the church of which I was formerly the pastor. Uh, His name was Albert. And Albert gradually began to decline in health as he grew older. And he died when he was just on 99 years of age. But Albert was a man who came to church every single Sunday morning and evening and every midweek meeting and every other meeting of the church. And it was his habit to do that through all the years that I knew him, which was about 20-odd years. And sometimes after his health had really deteriorated and he could no longer walk to church with his two sticks trying to steady himself, when he could no longer make it with his walker, we used to go and fetch him. I used to fetch him from his flat and take him to church. Subsequently, when the, the church I was with amalgamated with the Grace Church in Broadstairs, Albert still wanted to come to the Sunday morning services. I had to go and fetch him, and I took him. And he used to always sit right under the the rostrum where the pastor preached from. But he was there. And with great difficulty and pain he was there. With such difficulty. Why, why was it so? Because he wanted to be there. And so I commend those of you who have difficulties and health issues. Your presence in church is such an encouragement and you may not even be aware of it. Keep it up. You are pleasing God, you're pleasing the church, you are encouraging the church. And so, in verse 18, this is what the psalmist says, I will offer up to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And that simply means to always be grateful for saving grace and all the mercies of God that came to him and that will come to you. And in an age... The age in which we live when complaining and grumbling are so common and even common in church life, just to say, I am so grateful for the way in which the the Lord has helped me. I'm so grateful for what God has done for me. That brings glory to God. That's the, the offering of thanksgiving that is true and sincere. The psalmist who received the mercy of God could also say then in verse 15 that just as the Lord had been merciful to him in his life, will he not be merciful to him 
in death as well. For he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Merciful in life. And when that day comes and finally that river of death is crossed to be ushered into the presence of God, uh, that is absolutely glorious. The God of mercy in this life will be the God of mercy on that day when we leave this life and we see Jesus Christ our Saviour for the first time. And then we will see our Saviour. Then we will worship him. Then we will serve him with unsinning heart. Take heart, dear Christian, here this night. Do you remember Stephen? In Acts chapter 7 and verses 55 and 56, as he was being stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If Stephen's death was precious to God, the psalmist knew that his own death finally would be precious to God. And when you leave this life as a believer and, you're, and you come to those, the, the gates of the celestial city in the words of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, would it not be a precious thing to God to see you at the very gates of that wonderful place, certainly. You're not just one amongst a huge, great number of people in this world, or even believers, but God looks upon you as the one whom, whom he has brought to faith, and he will bring you at last, excuse me, to heaven, and in his sight even then your death will be so precious to him. Does this not speak of the comfort that we have as believers when a family member dies, a husband, a wife, a child, parents, and they go to be with Christ? We don't despair. Why is that? Because we know where they are. They're with Jesus. They're there now in perfection without a stitch of sin in the glorious, beautiful righteousness of Jesus Christ, serving him, loving him, as I said, with unsinning heart. We who remain look on, and in a sense we envy them. And we know that at last we shall be with them too. You see, it's not hopeless, but it's encouraging and it's wonderful. That's what the psalmist is getting at there. <clears throat> it's no wonder then, as we conclude, that the psalmist begins with a confession in verse 1 when he says, I love the Lord. Do you see that? Verse 1, I love the Lord. He says it, he places that <clears throat> those few words in the foremost place of that verse. He couldn't make it stronger. I love the Lord. But he concludes in verse 19 with the words hallelujah. For he says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's saying, what a merciful God is mine and 
Dear Christian, what a merciful God is yours. Sinner, what a merciful Saviour you have in Christ. And that's why you can come to him in confidence. But can every one of you truthfully say from the heart tonight, I love the Lord. May the Holy Spirit of God bring you to the Saviour so that you can say truthfully and with conviction, as the psalmist did here, I love the Lord. Oh, may God grant that that should be perfectly true for the glory.